Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. No agency proposes a big rule until it gets the okay from an office little known to the public. My next guest is the Permanent Deputy Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, known as OIRA. Now he's the recipient of a 2024 Presidential Rank Award. Dominic Mancini joins me now in studio. Mr. Mancini, good to have you with us. Uh, Pleasure to be here, Tom. Well, first of all, why do you think you got the Presidential Rank Award? Because the White House didn't say, and you have been there more than 20 years, and you've seen a lot of big rules go by. That's correct. Well, well, first you'd have to ask the folks who nominated me, but I will say, and I truly mean this, it really was uh, the accomplishments of the team that I was just able to help facilitate. But there, I think, were a few areas that they cited. One was the COVID, uh, the pandemic, where uh, we'll get a little bit into how we normally do our job under the executive order for regulatory review. But one thing that we do normally is have 90 days to review something. And, of course, during COVID, that was if we had 90 hours, that would have been too long. And so we kind of had to rip up the playbook and come up with something that uh, facilitated intergovernment just coordination of a lot of rapidly moving things. So that was one of the things that they cited is our office's ability to pivot and work much faster than we normally are uh, comfortable working. And I think a couple things that they also talked about uh, in this administration, this administration on day one, put together a very ambitious regulatory, what they called the modernization agenda. And that involved both updating and facilitating a lot of uh, climate change policy and regulation. And our office played a key role and that both a coordinating role and also offering some of the expertise in the economics of, of climate change. And also more generally, uh, they committed, the president committed our office um, day one to do what we call regulatory modernization, which was looking at all of our policies and making sure that those policies are updating them to be more consistent with this administration's priorities. And those among those were doing a better job of figuring out who was impacted by regulation. We do a pretty good job looking at the net efficiency, looking at the costs and benefits of regulation, but not necessarily who was impacted, who was hurt. And they really wanted to place an emphasis on that in both our information function and our regulatory function. So those were the main things that they cited. That's a good time to ask about the basic function of OIRA. I think a lot of people in the federal government may not even know what it does. And you might want to explain it, especially when you talk about regulatory reform in the context of the ACUS. The Administrative Conference of the United States, they have a lot to say about rulemaking as a process. OIRA, I guess, is more concerned with the content of rules. So maybe sort that out for us. (laughs) Sure, sure. So... Um, actually, the office, I'll, do, I'll give a very brief bit of history, uh, which was the office was actually created under the, what's called the Paperwork Reduction Act of 1980. But then at that time, President Reagan uh, very quickly kind of uh, also gave it an additional assignment to review uh, draft and final regulations to make sure they're consistent with the principles of the administration and that they basically have an evidentiary basis. So the costs and benefits worked out. That's basically what we've been doing ever since. The modern version of this is Executive Order 12866, which we're all required to memorize. That was issued by President Clinton, and it's still the procedures under we work. And to give you a sense of maybe the cultural history of OIRA, we actually recently just had an anniversary celebration of the 30th anniversary of the executive order, which is something that can only happen in D.C. I was going to say, yes, that's something that's really great talk at barbecues, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. So... So what do we look at when a regulation comes in? Uh, so I'll be very brief. It's uh, We only look at a subset of regulations that we call significant. 
And if you think you go back to what Congress tells an agency to do, for instance, they tell an agency for fuel economy regulations, they will say, go do good fuel economy regulations. But how does an agency actually decide what level of that to do? And so our office really – the agency is responsible for doing the analysis to justify any particular level of fuel economy that they would like and the structure of the regulation. So that can get a lot more complicated, everything from how to measure it. Uh, how to uh, make sure different sizes of car might not have the same fuel economy standards, how to actually uh, look at uh, whether it be climate change benefits, fuel savings benefits, uh, increase in the price of new cars versus cars. And so our our office actually reviews these in a transactional basis to just make sure that the agency is doing a good job and offer advice. And as a derivative and as an important function, we also set the standards themselves in order to the agencies have to look. And this is through OMB policy that we do a whole uh, series of things that we just finished actually last month to update our actual analytical standards for how to look at uh, the impacts of rules. We're speaking with Dominic Mancini. He's the Deputy Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, part of the White House, and a Presidential Rank Award recipient this year. That brings up an interesting question. You are a civil servant, and you have been there at OIRA since 2002, I believe. So you've seen the yo-yo back and forth, or the pendulum back and forth, with Republican and Democratic administrations. They often have very different philosophical frameworks, very different approaches to how they want rules to be done. What's that like and how do you deal with that? Because as a civil servant, you and your staff have to simply deal with the balls that are that are pitched to you. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, one of my duties actually is I'm kind of right in the middle of that because I do act as the head of the office, so the administrator during presidential transitions, and I did act in that capacity in the last two transitions for very different administrations. Really, what we what I try to tell the staff is these are really at the end of the day, we do have our the policies and words that we have that we take incredibly seriously. But one of those policies is to ensure that agencies are working towards presidential priorities. It really is a balance. Every administration, when they come in, they have a particular way, um, at least in my experience, everyone I've seen has a particular regulatory philosophy. Every administration freezes the regulations of the previous administration. So that is one of the things that we do. I think really at the end of the day, it sometimes is a hard balance. Most administrations, I think all administrations that I've worked with have at the end of the day have said something like, we know that we have a different philosophy but we still want to make sure that what we do is based on evidence and policy. And um, and ultimately, the regulations are also subject to courts, <laughs> and the courts can also come in and decide whether administration is actually adhering to the principles as established in each of the regulatory statutes that are that we set and we look at. Yes, because the power to regulate is, in fact, the power, at least the potential, to destroy and you can wreck an industry or you can you know, effectuate change that is beyond what Congress envisioned with a law or even what perhaps an administration thinks it was imagining. Do you ever come across where you might say, well, maybe this is not exactly what you want to do here? <laughs> well, I think that is one of the principles of the executive order to look at alternatives. Um, and um, at the end of the day, the agency is responsible, and that's in the words of the executive order and our our policy is which alternative 
Uh, and you should look at different alternatives. A wire doesn't really take, say, a policy position Understood. on a rule, right? But we will say, oh, this this option might have a better evidentiary basis based on the principles that we've set than another option. Uh, and we might recommend that. And that's that happens sometimes. And your bio, just to switch gears here for a minute, mentions that you were responsible for you serving as the lead in the implementation of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act and the Federal Data Strategy. How does that fit in with OIRA and tell us what you did? So, so first you have to look at the name. It is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. So we actually do have, we've talked a lot about regulation so far, but that is one of kind of the two pillars of OIRA and the other is information policy. This takes the form of, under the Paperwork Reduction Act, we approve collections of information from the public. And actually, under the Evidence Act, Foundations for Evidence-Based Policy Act, are there's two parts of OIRA, the Office of the Chief Statistician of the United States, which is actually in OIRA, and the Privacy Branch, which is actually also in OIRA. And they have explicit priorities and, and implementation responsibilities under the Evidence Act. Uh, this is really things such as, and we could go on for a long time, but um, for instance, the Evidence Act required the agencies to put together which was a, a single portal for if a researcher would like to access data from the public. And we call it the SAP. I'm not even sure what that means, the, those, those, uh, those initials. But Yeah, there was a data.gov, I think, that got established in the, the Obama administration, the, the repository. But that has evolved quite a great right. deal since and, then. And this is more – so the data.gov, if you think about it, that's kind of the menu of – that's the, kind of the resources that are already publicly available. But researchers sometimes want much more sensitive data, and that has mm-hmm. to be subject to confidentiality restrictions and maybe even going in a federal – like a controlled space in order for them to research, right. and that's what I'm talking about. And that's that's basically the information function of OIRA is actually, and it dovetails uh, very well if you think about decision making. Like it goes back to OIRA tries to help administrations make better decisions, and the information that goes into those decisions is often the make or break moment for when you're going to make a good decision. So OIRA has both policies and implementation responsibilities in that information production and also the regulatory review. And you seem pretty enthusiastic about work that is totally intellectual, uh, totally uh, numbers-based in many ways. It sounds like the economics background is really what drives you. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a little bit of everything. I think it can be extremely technically challenging if you think about understanding the literature for climate change and that gets into all these large economy-wide models. Because they don't all agree. They don't all agree. And there's also how to synthesize those very different models. Uh, and if you looked at the um, latest EPA numbers, which I'll say very emphatically that EPA is the one responsible for the content of their reviews, but we do review those those numbers. There's a lot of different comparisons of, of models. Uh, it can also – it's a lot of times it's not as intellectual. It's not as much based on the numbers. It's about who believes what and you know coalition building and negotiation. And I think um, if you're of a technical mindset and believe that's the way you should make decisions but also enjoy the cut and thrust of you know briefing up and decision-making and, and that kind of thing, I think it's a great place to be. And just a devil's advocate question – you might be seen, again, in some quarters, and we, we, we definitely don't take sides on this show, as an unelected bureaucrat with a lot of power over the economy. What's your answer to that if that comes uh, up at, for, that, at that barbecue? Yeah, first of all, I think no one has nearly as much power as anyone thinks. I think the what I do bring up is that 
you know, one of, I said this already, that one of our principles is being kind of the eyes and ears of an administration. And we are emphatically a career-driven organization. It's 90% career. We do have policy officials that we report to. And those ultimately are pretty close to the only elected official in the executive branch, which is the president and and the vice president by by derivation. So we do feel like uh, we are exercising authorities that are very well grounded in and um, the administration as as being in an elected office, and also you know the the regulatory processes of the U.S. federal government have been described as the gold standard. In fact, around the world, in fact, I think a lot of government officials elsewhere have come to the United States to learn how our government goes about rulemaking. Is that part of your kind of background uh, thinking when you're going about your work? That is actually. We do have a presence in some of the international organizations such as the OECD and, and APEC, and we work a lot with the Canadians and the Regulatory Cooperation Council. I would defer to the OECD on what they, they think does the best job, but they do emphasize things such as, uh, as you said before, there needs to, this is a large, a lot of decisions are being made that have a large impact on people's lives and having some accountability in those decisions. And those include public participation in those decisions. So notice and comment. And that can take many different forms across the world. It includes providing an evidentiary basis for those decisions. That's where analytical principles. And I think the U.S. does a pretty good job in, 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 all, of those, in all those areas. Dominic Mancini is the Deputy Administrator in the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at the White House and a Presidential Rank Award recipient this year. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll be talking with more of the most recent Rank Award winners in the coming days. Tomorrow, Lori Glaze of NASA. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And <laughs> what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.